welcome to episode number 10 of Research VR Podcast, where we dig deep into virtual reality with cognitive science and economic research. For those of you joining us for the first time, Research VR is a weekly podcast dedicated to breaking down years of virtual reality research into a digestible form and discussing the current economic trends of the industry around the world. In today's episode, we're talking about one of the most important features of virtual reality, the user interface. I'm joined here today by one of our co-hosts, Mr. Christoph Zdebski. Hi, Chris. Hello. Good to see you again. So this one is going to be an interesting show because UI is still something that's kind of unknown. You know, it's still very experimental, right? True. People. Um, there is a lot to discover here. There is. And, and we're, we'll kind of be comparing things to the UI of flat screens and of mobile and kind of understanding where we are and where we came from and why uh, things are going the way that they are and kind of connecting things to the actual, to your visual system and essentially how uh, you should be designing your UI based on that. So let's dive right into it. So let's go. Let's talk about traditional UIs. So, Basically, the, the term is called non-diegetic, which means uh, things, you know, let's talk about games and things are happening behind it. And there's a HUD that, or you know, even pop-up menus and things that kind of are away from the actual experience that are happening. And it's fine and dandy, you know, for, for, our, for our purposes and whatnot for games up until now. Um, and even things for mobile apps and web apps, um, we've gone away from, you know, skeuomorphic designs into very simple, minimal and abstract UI. Uh, and it makes sense because it really has a lot to do with people on people getting more experienced with the buttons, icons and interfaces to the point that you don't have to kind of like really lay it out in a really, um, let's say, familiar and natural Natural, I mean by the real nature around you. You know, it could be an, an abstract mm -hmm. form. Like, people know what the floppy icon means. It means to save. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, you could you could kind of argue that, like, kids these days don't really know what that icon even is. They just know what it, <laughs> what it does. But that really, you know, shows that icons really do have universal meanings and whatnot. Um, and I think those can definitely translate into into vr like icons don't have to be just a flat thing um but i think having real objects uh correlating with icons is a really interesting way of uh approaching vr ui but essentially yeah that's the traditional ui is that it's the zero distance from the camera you know it's right up on the screen and mm -hmm. uh it's done that way because it's closest to where you can see it and it's the most probably the most comfortable way of viewing um, before we talk about how, what UIs are being used right now in VR, I want to cover just very briefly what depth cues our visual system uses to understand depth. Um, first thing is binocular disparity. That's, that's the most simple one that pretty much everyone knows about. And it's the reason that we have two eyes, you know, there's a disparity between the two images that both ICs, which is called stereoscopic mm -hmm. vision. And whenever they want to look at one object, both eyes want to look at one object, they have to converge their, um, their, you know, their angles onto that one object. And that's called convergence. 
Second is called accommodation. This is a really interesting one that a lot of people mm-hmm. don't really know about is because there's the lens within your eye that actually is a um, really cool variable lens that kind of um, shifts from a concave uh, form to kind of more flatter, or I guess it's a convex. It is a convex, sorry, convex form to a flatter form. And so if things are very far and you need to converge or you need to see with one eye, you know, if something very far, then your the lens in your eye kind of flattens up. So this accommodation actually is interesting because it you can't, we still don't have a way of uh, figuring out what to do with this accommodation depth cue in VR mm-hmm. because of the fact that you have a screen uh, very close to your eye and I mean the lenses of your HMD make it so that the uh, screen seems it's about a, a meter and a half away I think is what Oculus says that the DK2s was I think the CV1 is the same way um, to the point that you can converge on different objects in VR but you can't your eyes actually can't really tell the difference using the lens shifting because the lens doesn't shift. Mm-hmm. It's all thinking that everything is a basically a meter and a half away, but it's just tricking basically your eyes and moving objects in two different screen uh, in the same screen, but two different parts of the screen to the point that you can converge differently and you can feel that it's um, further or closer to where you are. And the third is occlusion, which is actually the most important depth cue. Uh, you know, stereoscopic vision is important for understanding, uh, you know, the, the, the real 3D depth of things. But the way you can really understand where things are in 3D space is because of occlusion. And what occlusion is, mm-hmm. is put two objects in front of each other, one blocks the other, and you understand, oh, the one in front is actually, uh, the one blocking the other object is actually in front. Uh, because, so you can do this with a one eye closed. Uh, you can do this in a lot of ways, and it's probably the most three um, D kind of depth really ends as in stereoscopic vision ends a couple of meters away. You know, I think from fifteen to twenty meters past that, you really can't see uh, the difference between two objects being next to each other, and you you can't really understand which one is closer or further. So that's where occlusion really comes in to play, um, and for that reason, those are really important to understanding three D depth. So. VR UIs and how how do you really understand um, how to get go about doing this? There's a couple of different ways that people have been already approaching this issue. The first way and the easiest, simplest way is what we're calling canvas UI, where essentially you're taking the two two D flat canvas from your from your screen and just placing it in a real three D space in front of you. You know, think of like what virtual desktop kind of looks like. It just emulates this flat screen in front of you. And then you have a couple of different ways of interacting with it. One is ray casting, where you look straight ahead and there's a cursor that appears onto the screen and you can move the cursor by moving your head. And it's essentially in the middle, it's center eye kind of placement. Um, and that's how you can kind of look at things as your cursor. And then you can select it either by gazing at it for a long time. You know, some, some people have been doing that in, let's say, cardboard because you don't really have that many interacting methods. Um, and a second way would be to actually click a button. You look at something and then you click a button and it's not bad. You know, it's, um, it's, I think, okay for certain methods, right? Like if you don't have that many ways yes. of interacting with it. Well, actually ray casting is not limited to the canvas. You know, you, you can have objects in 3d, you ha- you can have much cooler mm. user interface. 
but you just look at the object that you want to interact with. The, the importance about the canvas UI is that it's very easy to just emulate your standard screen in virtual reality, yet still add to it. Because, for example, instead of having six monitors in front of you that take space on your desk and they are hugely expensive, you just put all your tabs from the web browsers around you. Right. That you can look at them in the same time without having an excessive number of screens. And even better is you could actually maybe organize them differently whenever you have those uh, tabs kind of surrounding you. So say you want all your uh, mm-hmm. Facebook tabs actually behind each other, so that you can, or or maybe put them you know on a on a y axis, so all your Facebook ones are kind of organized right yes. where and spatially. So. I think th- things like that can really go far, uh, and there's some cool research that that has shown that kind of having spatially organized tasks mm-hmm. uh, actually increases productivity by forty yes. percent. Super cool stuff, um, and I think VR can really bring bring that about. Um, so another way of interacting with these elements is instead of just raycasting or looking at them, you can actually touch them. Um, so that that you can do that through. Uh, motion controllers, or you can do that through things like uh, leap motion, so hand tracking. Mm-hmm. And I think this is actually probably the most intuitive way of doing things because a baby, you know, when a baby is born, they don't know how to use a cursor, but they the, what they start doing is they just start touching things. You know, they look at something and they want to touch it. You know, they just want to finick finick with things, and we're still like that. You know, I walk into. Uh, someone's tool workshop, and then I, all I want to do is just you know play with things. And so, well, that's what you're doing in the real life, right? At everyday basis, you don't use the mouse, you don't have any cursor in your real, real life, you don't even have like the crosshair that you usually have in any game, right? But you are using your hands. You're walking there. You're talking. And but I mean. You can make an argument that you wouldn't want to touch everything in a user interface that you do on a computer. Like I sometimes um, say, I just don't want to be clicking all over the the like you're playing Dota two or something, right? You don't want to yeah. have a gorilla arm up in the air. That that's a big issue with Leap Motion is that you you know you need to figure out what you really need to be touching rather than what you can just do with a simple click or tap and whatnot. True. You know? And I think really the best systems are probably the hybrids is when you are incorporating different kind of interaction methods together so that you um, not only can you like look at something and interact with it, but you can also touch other objects that you usually would touch. Mm -hmm. Um, And that kind of leads us into diegetic UIs, which are, these are really cool. Um, What diegetic UI means is that the UI elements are actually placed on their corresponding objects. So think of like a gun, um, and instead of in traditional games, you would have the ammo meter as a HUD in front of you, non-diegetically. And if you actually put that, the ammo counter on the actual gun itself, kind of like a hologram little uh, Mm -hmm. thing popping out of it, then that's better because not only is your attention, um, you don't have to kind of like, well, the, the, the biggest point, that diegetic UIs bring is that you don't have to converge uh, somewhere else. So if you're looking at a, if you're using an object, you want to see what, you know, whatever UI elements will pop out of there, mm-hmm. but you don't have to like converge out of there into this, a, a UI that's closer to your face and then, and then focus back to the object. Um, the best example I can think of actually is 
once we get, you know, some kind of like augmented reality for, for cars and whatnot, um, I was talking to someone that was making one and they were saying that instead of putting the actual um, dashboard elements on your windscreen, well, let's say your speed, your um, your navigation mm-hmm. and whatnot, actually placing it in 3D space in front of you. So the car in mm-hmm. front of you, uh, having it there. So you can actually concentrate or you can focus on the car in front of you and also see the elements right there. So you don't actually have to move your eyes around so much. Um, you wouldn't think that actually matters so much, but it actually does. It really does. Uh, once you focus out of something far into something close, everything behind it blurs out. So, uh, you, you know, the potential for dangers can definitely be there. Um, that is true. Think of it, actually think of it this way, like even guns in, in VR and when you're shooting, you're, you're not focusing on the gun. You're kind of focusing on a reticle and, and a cursor and, and, and where that's pointed and mm-hmm. what you're shooting at. Um, you could actually have the, uh, let's say, like a circle around the the ring, around the cursor that shows where, what your ammo is. So you actually don't even have to converge out of your reticle. And uh, when you see your ammo going down, you can, you can just keep reloading by looking at the target, uh, which is pretty much what you would be doing anyway in real life. Um, well, technically, the coolest thing would be that you don't have any counters you know you played the simulation right. of the battle from the world war Two, so you're just counting how many bullets have you shot already so you had those hmm. uh, muskets where you could fit rifles where you could fit five bullets mm-hmm. so then it's not so difficult to count when do you need to reload true actually I, now that i think about it what if you can play with kind of the haptic feedback so the more the 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 less you have in your in your um, magazine, maybe the the stronger the vibration will be. The more of the kick you'll feel, or the less you'll you know. Yes. Maybe you can play That's with things like cool that. That's actually a cool idea, right? I mean, you really don't. Then you kind of go into like zero user interface. Like you don't actually have to show anything. Mm-hmm. You can actually feel it, and you it's an intuitive sense. Um, and At the, this point, I'd say it would be easier doable with audio, so mm-hmm. that you could have some beeping or the hollowing sound. From your gun. I like that. Yeah, I like that more. And maybe even you can use both of them together, you know, and you really tap into like really interesting, implicit memory in that sense. That, exactly. Um, the more you use it, the better you'll get at it. And the more you can, I mean, you won't remember exactly how you're doing it, but your body will know essentially when your gun is yes. uh, being low. Because for guns, it's actually pretty easy to visualize. But let's say you are playing the Middle Ages game where you have quiver with arrows. Mm-hmm. How do you put a hologram in this game and don't break a presence? Don't break the context of the game. As in, yeah, to see how many arrows you have. Um, exactly. I don't know. Let's think about that, actually. How, how would you approach that problem? Um, again, well, I, f- huh? First of all, the, the arrows could rattle a little louder. Mm. Every time you're you firing know, one? I think... You know, like, the less arrows you have in the bow, then the... The different the sound of the arrows hitting each other would be. <laughs> I think that could be mistaken for like the power that you know. The more you pull back the arrow, like the more the different sound it'll make. You know, mm. well, and, I mean, obviously visually you'll see a different arc too. But yes, but then um, you could have different patterns of sound. Right. I I think maybe like I mean with an arrow, if you're still using a reticle, like a, a cursor, I think. 
could be good that you could kind of somehow lay like um, circles around the actual reticle, and you know, there's five circles, which means there's mm. five arrows in your quiver or something. Um, yeah, well, we we have here this topic of user interface usability and information that you provide versus the presence that you want to achieve. Right. I don't know. I mean, I those things. Could do you consider those to be immersion breakers in a sense that if you do have these these UI elements that are kind of there, if especially if they're you know diegetic uh, elements, like would you consider that to be an immersion breaker? That depends. I guess that yeah. Depends, I guess that depends. How much do you play this game? Mm. How much do you use this particular interface? You know how used to are you to virtual reality? So we have. The topic that we wanted to touch upon later, but it's already fitting here, <laughs> where where we just where we ask the question: What is the balance between a totally intuitive interface for a noob who yeah. never tried virtual reality versus somebody that is using virtual reality on every day? That is a complete profi at this point. Exactly, that's a really big uh, point, and I think we're going to have to start thinking about that in about, probably about a year or two. Uh, when you are going to have, you know, mass numbers of people, I mean, mass is a relative term, but a lot of people that are getting used to these uh, elements in VR kind of UI, then you can really start to experiment with with different abstract ways of of conveying information. And because I think right now VR is very much... Um, play. Uh, what do you call it? Anchored down in reality. <laughs> it, as funny as that is, because we're really trying to escape that. But we're still using a lot of skeuomorphic designs, and it's funny because like web and just computer design also went through the same phase. You know, we were when Apple first came out with a lot of their things, they were using real life elements. You know, real wood around certain um windows or notepads or actually look like notepads you know th- those are all skeuomorphic mm-hmm. things but the more you start to use it the more you realize you really don't need those things you know what the feature you know what the product is you know what you can do in there um yes but you are going to face this problem every time that you want to create a serious content because on the one side you will have those customers that are used to, to virtual reality, or maybe they are using this tool that you're creating in virtual reality on an everyday basis. Mm-hmm. And then they will be faced with the problem that there is a an executive or a customer or some other person that you that has a potential to better understand what you want to tell him if he uses the same app that you are using. I guess it, then, it really depends on on the point of the product that you're trying to create right right like so games are kind of a lot of them have to be more accessible to to the mass audience right because it is a game it's entertainment mm-hmm. it's not a yes. tool in a sense but now but now imagine that you have a software to design the kitchen and then the same software could be used by uh, in- interior designers mm-hmm. but exactly the same software so the interior designer wants to show to his customer or walk his customer through the same app, through the same process together with him to design his room. Mm -hmm. And now this interior designer has used this app over and over and over again over the last half a year. But the customer has never tried virtual reality or all he did was use Gear VR. And then he doesn't know how to use the HTC Vive controller. He doesn't have a feeling for it. 
That's where user onboarding really makes a big uh, difference. Um, and I think the best VR experiences that I've seen right now are, especially whenever I'm demoing it to someone that's never used VR, is if they have this really good user onboarding thing where there's a very simple 30-second tutorial in there. That's not even a tutorial. It's mere, It's just like kind of mm-hmm. elements that come out of the controllers that tell you what buttons do what. Uh, think tilt brush actually. Every t- every time you launch tilt brush, it kind of tells you to pull the trigger trigger to paint, and then it shows you on the left hand that there's you know other options. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty good, but they a lot of times I even I've noticed that they can be missed actually. So they have to be big yes. enough and even attention grabbing enough. Um, and attention is another really big thing that we we've been talking about is like how do you grab the person's attention? You know, either mm-hmm. with lighting. Uh, by you know darking everything else out and just having the controllers visible or by using audio cues to make someone turn around and look to your to their right um there's there's a lot of ways of really approaching this and and again it really depends on the application and what you're trying to accomplish and who is going to be using these so maybe you can like you're saying for serious tools maybe you can have um in a creator mode you know you can have it very deep and unintuitive in a sense think of like you know very unintuitive applications we use the today like um like let's say photoshop you know the, if you're going to give it to a mm-hmm. random person they're not going to know how to use it but once you yes. get good at it that mastery really helps you give get, helps you become efficient at that tool but then you can also maybe have like a spectator mode for you're saying for the interior designer uh, clients. You know, you just mm-hmm. give it to them, and it's like maybe two buttons or three buttons. And I think that's what uh, yeah. that's what Oculus is trying to do with the remote that they're releasing. Is that it's not you know it's not the it's not a full on controller that someone has to learn how to use. It's uh, it's not a touch controller. It's not an Xbox One controller, but it's just literally a remote mm-hmm. with a I think a click in a button and a scroll wheel. Uh, yes, it. yes, I remember. I've actually read very little about it and haven't even seen it or touched it, but I, that's kind of well. There. You have also those Bluetooth controllers that have a thumbstick and four buttons, mm-hmm. and that you can use them for mostly for mobile applications. Mm-hmm. Very simple. So I think interface. it's something similar. Yeah, apparently there actually are some games that just work using the remote, which is pretty interesting. Um, yeah, but come on, like in the Eve Gunjack, you just need to press. Uh, the touchpad most of the time and yeah. then you have two more interactions so why not do those two more interactions with buttons and then you're good to go agreed i i don't like the eve playing it with just like holding my arm up to the side of the hmp mm. it's it's very much it tires up my arm um and and i think it's very sensitive so you end up randomly pressing things you know without even seeing them or feeling them so true that's an issue but, but then also I had a second point here mm-hmm. that it's not only about if you know what to do, but it's also about how to do it. So we have been with Pat on the Zebit for all the last week. And there we have been also showing the Leap Motion Blocks demo. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people had actually problem to get a feeling how should they grab things. Like mm-hmm. for some people... The, the grabbing gesture was not working or it was not working because they simply had just slightly wrong movement with their hand. Yeah, and I think that's why the pinch method is really good at what it does to create those things. But you're right, the grabbing method, even I have problems with it sometimes. Yes. Where I don't know how much grab strength you actually do need to invoke on 
on on the on the cube to pick it up. And, and actually, the exactly. big, the biggest problem, uh, Christoph, is to throw it or to let go. <laughs> that's that, true. It really is. I don't. I don't. Okay. Even, I don't even know how to throw things. I have been playing this game on Sebit for five days for at least an hour in the morning, <laughs> in the mm-hmm. row, so that I can say that at this point I'm a bit of a professional with this. <laughs> okay. And so. I have no idea how to control the throwing direction. Wow, okay. So I mean, sometimes I sort of throw it in front of me, but not always. Sometimes it's just flying to the side. You can try to do like an underhand toss in front of you or like even a weird kind yes. of like side yes. chop toss. Um, My point here is <laughs> not to rent how imprecise and wrong this right, device right. is. I'm just saying that, okay, there are those interactions like index finger button pressing with leap motion. I'm pretty sure that that works pretty smooth. But then the question is, if it's going to work smooth for every person, and even if not, how people get a feeling how to be the most efficient, you know? How to use the leap motion, basically. I think a lot of these leap problems are solved with motion controllers that Vive and Touch have, that it is a trigger that you're pressing down, and then uh, then whenever you're going to throw something you just depress the trigger and you throw it you know as you move your hand so you know that that's kind of very technical issues and less even of the interaction that you have to do and more of just like what are you using to do that interaction um but it's an interesting kind of problem to look into but that is true and then it circle backs directly to the question of are you designing for beginners or the masters yeah and then if you are go if you need an app that addresses both of them, then you're in a bit of a pickles. Because you then know, you need to find a balance. It is a balance. I don't think it's an either or as well. Like um a lot of these UI kind of heuristics that have been used to develop user interfaces up until now are definitely real things that you need to be considered. And one of those things is this mastery issue is that can if a user gets better at your app can they find shortcuts of using it and i think that should be supported and shortcuts traditionally on computers have been done through um you know commands or con- control some you know control buttons mm-hmm. or just hot hot buttons and even in tilt brush this kind of pisses me off there isn't really an undo button v- on the on the controller like i have to kind of look at the menu and then find that uh-huh. leftward arrow which isn't even that like whenever someone tries to undo what they're doing, I have to tell them like find that arrow that does that shows like it's a rotating left. You know that's that's not a very simple thing. I wish they could, could they could find a way. Maybe using the grip. I don't know. Grip buttons, buttons aren't that good. But anyway, there's there should be simple ways of like undoing things that Control Z on computer has been so solidified and, and and for a good reason because you make mistakes often and you should be able to correct those mistakes. Um, so but that's actually a very good point, very good question. In games, we really don't think about shortcuts mm. because there you have three buttons, arrows, mouse key shoot, and you're good to go. But what if you want to have exactly a tilt brush mm-hmm. as a professional tool that substitutes paint? Well, I mean, even it in- substitutes Photoshop, where you just want certain actions to trigger with one step, not with three steps right. to reach it. Even with, I mean, there are a lot of people that use shortcuts and hotkeys in games. I mean, think of, think of uh, StarCraft, you know. Or, That's true. Yes. You know, it's like <laughs> when I was trying to learn StarCraft, and honestly, I didn't like 
I didn't get into it because that the learning curve was so high to even be mm-hmm. a competent player. You really had to master <laughs> all the True. the hot keys and whatnot. So, um, I that's I don't know if that's a button constraint or. I mean, you know, you know, sometimes you don't, you won't even need to press the button because you have this motion controller in your hand. So think of cool. this was interesting that um, level level up no stress level zero. That's the company they're making hover mm-hmm. junkers. Uh, they're trying to figure out how to change your controller or how to change your gun. And then what they came up with is actually just a radial menu that comes up around your hand. So you press a button. I don't know what button it is. But to change the gun, you press the, you hold down the button, and then above your hand, there's a gun. To your right of your hand, there's a gun. And whatever gun you want to choose, you just move your hand into that. So I know there's very little buttons on these controllers, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that we can't have these interesting shortcuts and hotkeys by doing these radial menus um, that you can kind of put your hand, maybe not even a radial menu around your hand, but like to move the controller in a certain place around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, think of what reloading is like in um, like certain Servios's um, raw data. So the way you reload actually is you just move your gun down to your like thigh and you bring it back up. Just like, or, or I think it's your left mm-hmm. hand that goes down to your thigh and brings it back up. So you have to really start to think about these interactions using the space around you and, and, and using even your mm-hmm. body. And I, I can't wait to see like what the undo button is going to be or what the undo gesture is going to be like, not just in one app, but like it's going to start becoming a trend in a lot of different apps. Uh, and we're, we're way too early to kind of see these trends. Um, but one trend I've actually really been seeing is this idea of, of an arm HUD. So um, a heads up display that comes up on your arm or even just your controller. So think of what an artist's palette looks like and what tilt brush uses mm-hmm. so you have um kind of th- these 3d holograms around your hand and you actually to to get access the buttons or access the settings on the other side of your hand that you're not looking you actually have to just moving your you just move your arm you rotate it and then you can look at it and then you have to kind of raycast with your right hand onto your left hand that part actually mm-hmm. isn't that in- intuitive until you have to tell someone to do that like point your right with your right hand to your left hand and then they see that there's a laser pointer kind of coming out yeah. of there. Um, well, I'd say Leap Motion is doing a pretty good job here with their contextual menu. So you need to put your hand, mm-hmm. left hand forward, and then the menu appears next to your hand. And then I, you just press it with your index finger. I really like that as well. And they took that idea from the Hovercast menu that someone had done on their platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I, forget, I forget the guy's name. We'll link it in there. But um, but the, the hovercast menu didn't really work because every finger had a menu coming out of its out of it, uh-huh. and you had to be super. You know, any any kind of occlusion of your hands broke leap motion back then, especially before True. Orion. So the basically leap was like, okay, let's not put a menu on each finger. Let's just put it like to the right side of the hand, and every time you mm-hmm. open your hand, you'll have it there. I really like that, and it worked really well. People understood it instantly. There, because you just tell them, you know, open your hand, and then with your right hand, touch those buttons, and then they understand that. So, and it's less abstract than using a laser pointer in your right hand but and it's almost like a dream come true you know like most of the people that are interested in science fiction can imagine those holographic menus and it's like the thing that they always wanted right exactly 
Um, I want to briefly talk about uh, uh, kind of best practices that Oculus has put out there for UIs. Because, um, I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about interaction and how that's going to be working, but we still have to display content in front of you. You know, a lot of what we do with technology is reading. And reading is kind of is still a huge issue in, in VR because yes, of, okay, let's, you know, obviously resolution is one big thing. Screen door effect somewhat is still a thing. Um, what do you call it whenever, I don't know, I actually don't know, is it a color aberration? or I, Whenever you look at text, actually, you can see almost a red outline on top of the text and a blue outline of it underneath it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like it's, Yes, it's, but that only happens if you don't look directly at the text. Oh, because you're kind of looking at the pixel from a high, higher angle, isn't it? Yeah, it's just because right. the lenses are distorting the... Uh, the the picture farther from the middle. Right, right. Well, that's I mean that's corrected mostly in the CV one and the in the Vive, as far as I can tell. Like, obviously, this text is still a big issue. What mm -hmm. Oculus is recommending, as of like Oculus Connect, which is what I've been watching, um, or kind of referring to, is that they they're saying that have the menu in front of you. Yes, yeah, so you can still have like the flat UI in front of you. But this is an interesting thing is that kind of curve it around yourself in a perfect kind of circle or say like a half a semicircle or a third of a circle. So, and the reason for that actually is that, again, it goes back to convergence. If you have a really big flat screen in front of you, um, then looking to the all the way to the left of the screen versus the middle of the screen, those are two different convergence points for your eyes. Mm -hmm. And they have to, you know, it, it's just more effort for your eyes to do. So if you actually have a curved panel in front of you that kind of goes left and right, then you still converge upon the same point, even though you're looking to the left of the screen or to the right of it. Yes. Um, beyond from that, they start to talk about that having a wall of text in front of you, um, it's really like they're, they're trying to address scrolling in VR and how are you going to be reading and scrolling. Mm -hmm. If you have something really big and tall, and you start to scroll, that actually induces a lot of motion sickness, which is pretty interesting. Like, because nothing really is moving apart from the text, but if the text is big enough, then that kind of takes over your periphery, peripheral vision as well. So it feels like you're moving instead of the text itself is moving. Yeah, so, I could see personally more of the neck pain and uh, yes, just discomfort from looking very high and, or very low. Yes, and there's some cool office ergonomic research that's been done about that you know it's like they say you should have text uh, um from your eyes you know if you're looking straight forward straight forward downwards you should have it the text from like 15 to 50 degrees um i think you can kind of play with those numbers a little bit and a lot of and that is done through also, prototyping but go ahead. it also depends on the device that you're designing for and for example let's take three different cardboards Mm -hmm. And then each of them uses slightly different lenses. And then the one cardboard that we ordered for my company has basically, you can place the text on the whole screen because the lenses are not distorting the text at all. So it feels comfortable to read anywhere it is. And then on the other model that we got as an example, you can read text just in the middle or even yeah. on QVR, yeah. you just have those 15 degrees in the middle because beyond that you have the problem with colors that you just mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And 
even even just having the wide if it's wide enough then sometimes if you have buttons to the left and right of it uh the 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 people that designed oculus home they were talking about this in the oculus connect talk uh we'll link that at the show notes as well really cool talk it was like 50 minutes long uh, anyone interested in ui actually just look at a lot of the things that we'll post in the show notes um if you want more information about any of the things that we're talking about but they were talking about how um therefore oculus home on the left side they have buttons uh, as to like you know uh different categories and things to go into mm-hmm. and whenever you look at them then the things on the right of the screen are already out of your field of view. And then when you click on them, those things out of mm-hmm. the field of view are changing, but you don't know that they're changing because you're not seeing them. So it doesn't give you an incentive to look right mm-hmm. again. So they don't know what's changing. So having things you really like, th- this is, I mean, th- I know these things are going to change as FOVs get wider and wider, but like for now, the, with the technological constraints that we have, you really need to understand um, that something is happening on the screen or in around you that you're not realizing. And, and let me, and I should mention that like getting out of your own perspective as a developer is really hard to do because you know, what's changing in your own environment whenever you press a button, but a new user will not. So that's, I think user testing has become the most relevant thing for VR because on just a normal desktop thing, whenever you click a button, you're most likely going to see what's changing there, but not yes. in, definitely not in VR. So that's... Now, one more thing here. I'm pretty sure that bigger field of view is not going to fix that for a simpler, simple difference between the attention to the center, mm-hmm. to where you're looking versus attention in the periphery. You're paying much more attention to what is happening in front of you. And if the thing in front of you is too engaging that you won't even that you yes. will not pay attention yes. to the periphery. So even if something is changing there, you won't notice. Let's let's connect this to cognitive science actually. And and here's a design idea for so we're talking about periphery and how you basically see you have less resolution in your periphery of your vision. Mm-hmm. But what your periphery of your vision is very good at isn't colors because the, the the middle of your vision is really good at colors, but it's good at seeing black and white, and it's really good at seeing motion. So it sees. Yes. You can understand when things move. So that's why actually, um, even I'm looking at Google Notes or Google uh, Drive right now, Google Docs. You know, that's what we use to to write our things. Whenever someone goes in and out of the document you see them popping up at the top right corner. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, I remember seeing another talk from Google um, and they're using talking about cognitive science and how they use that in their designs is that you don't want something popping up in front of you unless it's like a super, super urgent thing. But if you want their attention to be drawn to the periphery of their vision or little notice, a little alert, a little notification coming up, use it, put it in the periphery of the vision because they can see something changing in the periphery mm-hmm. But um, even if it's you know not that big or not that big of a motion, so that that's an interesting thing to note. True. So it could be very nicely used in virtual reality. So the random idea I just had right now. Mm-hmm. How about the user interface that is not based on objects and colors, but actually on movement, so that you have information conveyed through the movement. Mm, can you can you for example for example. Still sticking to the games. You are running out of ammo. 
So then you just have a, some sort of blink or some sort of movement in your periphery notifying you, reload. Right. Or even like, yeah, literally like a fade, uh, like something fading in and out of vision or... Exactly. Um, or that your life bar is running low so that your periphery is going to decrease or that you will see some sort of movement, blood dropping. Yeah, Things like that. Right, or just like a filter of your own vision becoming red. Or um, this was interesting. I saw this happen. Uh, they were talking about this at GDC, the Eagle Flight game that Ubisoft is making. The way they're kind of mm-hmm. doing turning is that they're um, fading the actual screen darker. From so, if you're turning right, then the right side of the screen suddenly is like sh- is starts to fade black. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really gives you the sense of motion of turning right. And also it really helps with motion sickness is what they're saying. I w- and okay. um, really interested to seeing how that's implemented and how that feels. But basically <laughs> it comes back down to just like try out maybe many different ideas, like four, five, six different ideas, and then test it on people that haven't used it before, even in the company that haven't, you haven't told them an idea yet, you know, really test test it out and because right now we're all still trying to see what's going to work and what's not going to work and what yes. works now might not even work in two three years because it will just get outdated and or boring or better trends will come out so we're i i talk about like perspective and, and functional fixedness lock a lot is because like you really do get bogged down in your own mind and it's really hard to see outside of mm-hmm. that and intuition is very hard to kind of uh, intuitively think about. <laughs> that's that's a mm-hmm. weird thing to say. And it's but. not only that, but it's that your users have to get a feeling for a device, for the input device that you're going to use. Exactly. And then the question is, how? what is going to be the reaction between your device, your input device versus your user, potential user? Right. And then you need to test it over many people because you have those hardware limitations, though, mm-hmm. that you need to consider when you are designing the interface. And those hardware limitations change from hardware to hardware. So if you're, yes. you know, device ambiguous, then you really like, is it going to scale to each device or is it going to be a different interface and a different interaction method for each device? So there isn't one silver bullet that you can use for those interactions, but I think talking about it and and trying to approach these issues from a good real scientific perspective is at least can help guide your development uh, into doing this in a correct manner so that it's not going to, it feels better intuitive and and less sickening. Mm -hmm. So um, let's, let's wrap it up. Christoph, I think this was uh, a good little short episode we wanted to put out there just for people that are interested in UI and still trying to figure out how to convey uh, system information to the user um, in in VR, which is still a hard thing to do. So, uh, in summary, basically, I agree. Sorry, I agree that it was a good discussion. A lot of ideas. If you steal our ideas, just let us know. <laughs> yeah, actually, we'd love to see. I mean, I try to scour a lot of these um, small you know, indie builds and see how people are doing things. Um, there's a there's a cool Slack network I think you guys should try to join if you want to talk more with developers and things. I'm pretty mm-hmm. active on it. It's called the VR Creators Network. Um, 
And the way to join, actually, you kind of have to ask someone for an invite code. It's not, I mean, it's not like an exclusive club. It's just like you need someone to ask for an invite club. Um, we'll post the link on the bottom and it's uh, one of the admins you just have to send a message to. So if you guys want to talk more about hardware, uh, UX, research, news, anything, that's a really cool area to join. And it's actually populated by a lot of developers from uh, just like all the game companies, a lot of the big VR companies, just just random people that are interested in talking about this. Um, and I just have good discussions there every once in a while. It's so, a place to be. Yeah. Um, next time, actually, we'll be probably discussing more UI and interaction stuff with uh, someone from VR Influx. That uh, that mm-hmm. she's a UX designer um, from Tomorrow Today Labs, and she she does a lot of writing about this stuff. So. It's interesting, and uh, I don't know when the, the interview and whatnot will be, but soon enough we'll have it up. So, yeah. sorry for the delay, guys. We've we've been really crammed down on final exams and interviews and things like that. So, and Sebit, and um. yeah, and Sebit and GDC. So, um, we'll we'll definitely be posting more from for the next couple of months. So, hope everybody enjoyed this short short podcast. And uh, let us know how what you think. All right, bye. Bye bye.